Well, I'm doing something this morning. I probably can count on one hand how many times I've done this in my ministry. Uh, And that simply is, is that I kind of scrapped the normal Romans 9 that we were in, or 10, I guess, uh, lost track. Um, And I've decided to speak uh, more obviously to the things that are going on in our culture. Uh, It not only is necessary, but I think it's helpful for us to keep reminding ourselves in the midst of a very chaotic world what God really wants from us. It was... uh, This last week that George Floyd in many ways made uh, infamously the headlines by being arrested by four police officers and in the midst of that was killed because uh, as you saw on the videotapes and so on and so forth, uh, one of the police officers chose to do, put his knee on his neck for approximately eight minutes and because of that and other complications ended up losing his life. Obviously, the whole world has been enraged by that. Um, We have seen us become sort of the volcanic epicenter of something that has rippled through our entire country. And it is difficult to look at the magnitude of the brokenness of humanity and where we've come. You know, we keep talking constantly that we think we're getting better and we keep working at stuff that we absolutely keep failing at. And we are not gaining ground on things that we would like to think were past historical realities. And in the midst of this, we have things that are so profound and overwhelming that most of us are often scrambling to find out what is it I'm really supposed to do. The other side of that coin is if I do anything, does it make any difference anyway? And so we need to remind ourselves of some things that I think at least get us biblically anchored at the risk of not saying enough, not saying the right things, not saying them in the right way. I think it was important for us to dip back into the scriptures and understand kind of the biblical landscape in light of the human chaos that we are observing and living in. I have to admit it was kind of a strange feeling to sit in your house and have a curfew at eight o'clock and watch on TV them deploying the National Guard. I mean, that's so surreal that it's really hard to think that we're actually watching this unfold in our particular state, in our particular city. Uh, George Floyd's death became sort of the clarion call of injustice. It was a statement that just rippled through everyone's life. It didn't matter what ethnic group you were, it just sort of screamed of injustice and it has caused tremendous catastrophic collateral damage from there. There's people who've tried to exploit the situation. We have all kinds of scenarios that we could explore, and we're not gonna do that today. Uh, I'm not usually the normal person to get political. I don't know if this is the time to do it. Uh, I'm Canadian after all, so we are nice to everybody, but anyway. But at the heart of this, I wanna just talk about some things that I think are important in this process. Uh, First of all, I think in the midst of all of this, we have to make sure that we condemn all forms of injustice. That's just, may seem like an automatic assumption, but I think we're often afraid of the reality of standing up and saying stuff is wrong because we live in a culture where uh, tolerance is absolutely sort of the calling card of our environment. But we have to pass on our condolences to the Floyd family and others who have faced similar injustices. 
it is absolutely wrong and it is, uh, leaves a blemish and a mark on our culture that really hasn't changed much in a lot of years. As we begin to think about it, I want to suggest to you that the problem is not just about injustice. Uh, there's discrimination, there's prejudice, there's bigotry, but I believe that from a biblical perspective, it's even deeper, and that is the problem of sin and moral evil. We don't sometimes use words like that because they sound loaded, but the scripture talks about the idea of evil being in our culture. Uh, we, I think from the scripture's perspective and things that we see that God does in Acts is that all kinds of moral evil uh, is to be condemned. The danger we saw this last week is that one profound act of injustice and moral evil literally gave birth to a massive amount of evil that took place. And it showed itself up in a variety of different ways. Um, whether we understand all the stats, there's people that come from other parts of the country just to destroy things, to make a statement. Uh, I have ringing in the back of my ears that destruction and not peaceful protests, but kind of rioting becomes often the language of those who do, do not feel like they're being heard. We can debate those things all day long, but what we discover is like many things is that moral evil tends to breed moral evil and it tends, uh, the end does not justify the means. We have seen that often the very thing that people do to get attention often is the very thing that's detrimental to the cause. And so as we begin to think about this, I want to, one, I'll begin to start by passing on how sorry I am, how sorry we ought to be as believers to our black and African-American friends who have suffered horribly in circumstances like this. It's not just limited to them. There's other different ethnic groups who've experienced similar kinds of things, and it just sort of compounds the horror of it. But unfortunately, it takes place in all different realms of our society. We, if we're understanding our sense of humanity, understand that evil touches all of our lives in so many different ways. One of the things that we find ourselves in is we don't know what to do with our emotions. Literally, you'll find people that will be fairly almost indifferent to it. They'll see it going on, but they've been so enculturated, they've seen it so often and so much that they're just sort of used to it. You get others that are deeply angered and incensed and enraged as they should be. There's no way we should simply accept any kind of moral evil, any kind of injustice, and to allow it just to run, be run over by the activities of people who think that they're, what they were doing is more important than what everybody else has to receive. And so we have these things of panic and fear and anxiety and we don't know what to do with it. Uh, there's this sense of us, being that I'm Canadian and I'm white, that you want to help, but it's something a lot, very foreign. Uh, you may not believe this, but it's somewhat foreign to us as Canadians because we have not lived where you have to live and have lived for many, many years. But the other side of it is that it always takes two to solve a problem. It's not a one-dimensional thing. And so we struggle to know what to do and how to do it. Our ignorance of understanding one another sometimes fuels the whole process as well. But the, let me just try to address two or three issues that I think are helpful, at least in terms of my own convictions and some of the things that we're seeing. The first one may seem semantical, but it has to do with the whole issue of racism itself. 
And I believe that there is a biblical precedent to deal with just the terminology that we use. And I've said it before, and I will say it again, I believe the word racism itself is a misnomer. Now, before you react to that, let me try to clarify what I'm saying. When we look at the, if I was, for instance, an evolutionist, and I believed in evolution, that all of the things that exist are simply random accidents that simply accidentally created something that was bigger than itself, and I actually believe that, to me, that would probably be the strongest argument for what I would call different races. That you, it, that accidental process has created people that are black, people that are white, people that are Asian, people that are Filipinos, people that are Hispanic, and all kinds of different varieties of people. But if evolution is true, I could really see how easy it would be to decide that there are different races and they have different values because some clearly are more sophisticated, talented, and skilled than others. But I don't believe that for a minute. In fact, I believe that the idea that of our existence comes from God's creation that he describes in Genesis 1 and 2, where he creates male and female, human beings, and he stamps his image upon them, which says that every human being that is going to follow has value because God has created them in his image. But I also believe that the scriptures indicate that every human being that has come into this world that Adam and Eve are the progenitors of everyone who exists. And, and so my contention would be is there is only one race. That race is human beings. And, and so I, I certainly believe there's, in fact, the scriptures will use the word nations, and the word there is ethnos. It's the word ethnic. There are lots of different kinds of ethnic groups, and they have their own unique culture and values and distinctives that are different than other ethnic groups, but there is only one race, and it's the human race. And if we could think biblically about it, I believe that that would have eliminated massive amounts of problems historically when we actually begin, have a starting point, we have a premise that says, listen, every single human being, regardless of whatever ethnic distinctions they have, all belong to the human race. There is only one. And to suggest otherwise, I think, is to discriminate about the handiwork of God and how God has created us as human beings. And so I prefer to talk about this, not so much as racism, but ethnic prejudice and discrimination. Now you might say, well, that's semantical. Well, I think it has some clear, fundamental biblical realities to it that we're not living by, that our communities do not embrace, and therefore we have this massive injustice towards other people because we tend to devalue those that are different than us. And, and so as we begin to think through this, uh, I believe that there are horrific ethnical prejudices and discrimination that have to be dealt with. But there is only one human race. When we talk about injustice and evil, there are, I, I still think that the language we need to use is evil, is moral evil. We can talk about all kinds of it in certain different ways. We can talk about lawlessness and we can talk about injustices and we can talk about theft and all kinds of different ways that it moves out. But at the heart of that, the substructure, the, the moral decay in the human condition becomes sin and evil. This sort of raises the other problem is that if we have this perspective that humanity 
is basically good and that everybody's sort of on the playing, same playing field and everyone deserves to go to a better place when they die, we run into this horrific problem of trying to explain massive bad behavior by human beings and write it off as being either everyone else's fault or social conditioning. It's not that those things don't affect us. We all act because of the way we grew up and the context we grew up, the values that were built into our lives and the way we did it. But at the heart of this, the scriptures come back to us and continue to communicate to us that we are fallen human beings and we are broken, desperately broken in a world because we've rejected God. Romans 1.18 makes this powerful statement that the wrath of God is being revealed, or as it were, is poised to deal with all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. And we could spend a tremendous amount of time dealing with those components, but the the fact is, is that the Bible uses often language that's even stronger than we would use. There is evil. There is moral evil. We know that there's natural evil. But the worst, of course, is the collateral damage that is inflicted from one human being to another because of anger and rage and all kinds of other things that tend to affect, affect our human condition. I want to suggest to you, Martin Luther made the comment one time, he said, justice is the most indispensable element of our greatness. When we lose a sense of our justice as a community in the context of living you know, as citizens of a particular people group, then nothing but, you can, and we can see it, nothing but chaos and destruction really ensues from it. There is something about the fact in the heart of God that when he created us, he gave us sort of these elements within our spirit and soul, this imprint of the image of God, that as we saw back in Romans 2, that even if you don't have the law, even if you're not interpreting creation, there's this intrinsic reality within us, this intrinsic revelation that says, I can do things and I know there's times if someone did that back, I would consider it wrong. But for me to do something, I'm okay with doing it because I'm justified. The very fact that we have a conscience that interacts with our actions and our thoughts Rises, raises us above the reality that we're just evolutionary accidents, that we become the fingerprints of a God who cares about us. Now, as I think about this, I have sort of struggled with the question at times is how do we respond? You know, it, it would be really easy up here to stand up here and tell people they should do something. The question is, what is it that you tell them to do? And I wanna propose to you that it doesn't start with us, especially as a community of faith. It always begins with Jesus. That if our first response is what we ought to do, that usually ends badly. If we start with Jesus, then we have a better picture of our starting point as believers. And there's a couple of ways to look at it in the Gospel of John. In verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Now I wanna pause, pause there for just a second. I, I, I don't know the words to describe it, but here you have the second person of the Godhead who enjoys the perfect, majestic fellowship of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and they've done that for all of eternity, and I have no real way to describe this other than this. I don't know how, <laughs> and I'm speaking really in human terms here, so don't take me too seriously, but. I don't know how he got voted into this role, 
But I don't know any one of the Godhead who would say, listen, yeah, I'm gonna take on flesh and blood and I'm gonna drop into this broken trash can of humanity and we're gonna just make it work. I mean, I, I think the horror of our brokenness, the horror of our sin, the horror of our injustice, our lust, our anger, our bitterness, our sinfulness in every sense would have been so abhorrent even to an incarnate Christ that it's even hard that he'd want to even do it. And I'm speaking obviously from completely human terms. It just sounds repulsive. It'd be like us jumping into some sewer and going swimming. It, it just, there's nothing that sounds attractive about it. And so Christ did not come because he wanted to hang out with us because he thought that this would be a great place to vacation. This is not the tenor of scripture. He is stepping into a cesspool of broken, sinful humanity, and he's gonna do what he is called to do by the Father to rescue men and women and, and people who are desperately broken and can't fix themselves. And so as I begin to think through this, we're told for his... Um, not only he dwelt and we beheld his glory, glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I will suggest to you as we think about this that that's our starting paradigm. That when Christ stepped into this reality, knowing full well the, the, the corruption and the toxicity of humanity, he came and the description that we're given to him is that he's full of grace and full of truth. It's not grace or truth, and it's not just truth, it's grace and truth. So we never have to abandon the idea of truth. So the idea of, of justice is clearly the, the, the ringing clarion call of righteousness. But it has to be done in a sense that grace becomes the reality of what shapes how that works. Grace, as I would describe it, is we talk about favor, that would is probably not sufficient to describe. Who do you give favor to? Well, obviously victims of injustice, that's, but where does it stop? Where does it extend to? It, business owners, and, but we've, I heard this morning of, of all kinds of people uh, donating money to bail out people who've been imprisoned from the rioting that they've done, which kind of raises people's eyes to go, okay, is that, is that proper grace? What does this look like? And so it gets profoundly confusing. But grace, to me, in its simplest definition, is where God, in his kindness, provides what is both necessary and sufficient for life and godliness. And what I mean by life is eternal life, to start with. We see that through the gospel. And then the fullness of life in Christ. You can never separate that from godliness, but that's exactly the way Peter talks about it, that we experience life and godliness, and that's the measure of grace, and so as we think about how do we respond, we have to be committed to the truth, but we want to do it in a way that helps bring life to people, that helps bring godliness into a circumstance, and helps honor God not only in what we do, but how we do it. Because as I said, the end can never justify the means. Jesus uh, ran into that in, all, in his temptation experience. He ran that in, in all kinds of things that he did. But that becomes, I believe, our starting point as believers as we try to step into to help, to encourage, to comfort our brothers and sisters who've been victims uh, of trying to reconcile this, this ethnic prejudice that has ransacked and destroyed our culture for hundreds of years. 
And it has to be the starting point in terms of how we step into it. Now, I was trying to think of ways that we step into the suffering and the injustice of others. I have not thought of all the elements of it, but let me try to suggest some things that we tend to do at least. The one is sympathy. However you would define that, sympathy often is this sense that our hearts are grieved. At least they ought to be grieved. And we ought to be heartbroken when we see injustice, whether it's in our neighborhood, with our own family, or someone across the world. If there's no sympathy at all, there's something else broken in there, I think, because we just have no sense of, of concern for the people around us. The second one is what I call mercy and compassion. Mercy is that kindness of God that responds to us when we're most vulnerable. And compassion is a close comparison to it. Mercy seeks to protect. Compassion is this sense of responding to the need. There are people who have tried to do things like peaceful protests and try to support family members. Uh, There's people that are going down, for instance, now and helping clean up stores and, and help try to help businesses put things together. So there's practical ways that people show mercy and compassion when people are vulnerable and when they're showing compassion. The other one, I'm not quite sure how to do it. It's kind of what I call an identity suffering. It's the idea when I move alongside and join somebody in their suffering. I I sort of help bear the burden. I bear the load a little bit with with what they're doing. I uh, had a friend of mine that I've, chatted with, uh, with a couple of people, but um, I knew him way back when I was in Portland. He is a really big guy, man of God, just loved him to death, uh, journeyed with him and his wife when their twins were born. They were in the hospital for about six months trying to deal with life or death issues, and we've journeyed with them. They're a great couple, but just things have not gone well for them, and they're just in a really rough spot, and I called them the other day, yesterday, And it's really hard when you've seen people in the past and they have this great fire for God and so on and so forth and then hear the pain and the agony that they're struggling with. And I, I, the statement that broke my heart is, I don't know how I got here and I have no idea how to get out of it. And I told him, I said, man, if I could, I'd just come up there and hang with you. And sometimes we have a hard time doing this identity suffering with people. We have sympathy. We can sometimes have mercy and compassion to do things for people. But it's a really tough thing for us to identify so much with someone in their suffering and in their struggle that we're willing to journey with them in it. Because we all have stuff we have to do. And we also convince ourselves that I'm not sure that whatever I do is really going to make a difference. And so as you think about this, probably the thing that we need to learn to do is how do we move alongside people? I always think of Job and his three friends. You know, they were stellar till they opened their mouths. They went and sat with them. They just hung out there. They were just with them. You know, we always want to say the right thing. We always want to say something that will encourage them, and inevitably we end up saying stupid stuff. And Job's friends were absolutely spectacular till they opened their mouths. 
And sometimes the, the, what we need to do is just hang with our brothers and sisters who are suffering. We don't have to fix them. We don't have to, we, we, there's no way we can snap our fingers and make it all better. I mean, I don't have the ability to do that. I don't know anybody that does. And yet that's hard for us, especially guys. You know, we just want to fix it. You know, our wives know that, right? You know, they have a problem, want to fix it. And that comes across like we want to fix you. And that's often the problem, is we don't know what to fix and we don't know how to fix it, but we want to be helpful, so we take a shot in the dark and it often hurts people. The last way that we enter into suffering is what I call substitutionary suffering. It's the statement that Jesus said that no greater love that a person has is if they lay down their life for their friend. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. And in the midst of all this, it's difficult. I, it's, it's easy to say stuff, and I get that. And I, I say things not because I think I'm an expert at knowing how it works, but this is what Jesus, I think, says to us. And I believe that at the heart of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice, where he took our place for the judgment we deserve for the sin and the brokenness and the toxicity that we have in our own lives is that he is a redeemer that saves us from things that we can't save ourselves. And there's times that we can move in and and help people and in a sense rescue them from things that they have no way to rescue themselves from. And sometimes that takes a tremendous amount of sacrifice that is very, very difficult for us. I think we have to keep on asking how do we can help. Um, I texted a friend of mine the other day who uh, sent a text and was just in extreme pain and agony. And I said, I will, I will pray for you. We have to be careful that doesn't become a cliche. It's hard, it's sometimes hard, I think, for us to say that because we so desperately want to do something that we've lost the sense of the power of prayer with a God who can do impossible things. And so sometimes we catch ourselves running around doing stuff, but we don't pray. And so I asked the proverbial question. I said, well, is, is there any other way we can help? And by his own admission, he says, praying's great. I appreciate it. I don't know. Because what's enough? What are we going to do that's going to be enough to make this go away? Well, because of the human condition, I think that's impossible apart from the gospel. And I, I want to remind you that God is not in, ignorant of injustice. He's not unfeeling. We always have to come back to the gospel because we then realize that when God sent his perfect, spotless, sinless lamb of God, his son, he went through injustice and brutality and torture and abuse that is equal to anything that we've probably seen. And not only that, but he was butchered on a cross and sacrificed his life as part of a plan to rescue us from that wrath and judgment that we deserve for our own sin. So God is not unfeeling. He's not ignorant about it. And I know the question is, is why doesn't God do something about it? I'd prefer he'd answer that than me try to answer for him. But I do think that there's an element of God's got his people on this earth to reflect the radiant presence of Christ because his spirit dwells in us. And I think if we sat down and had a little discussion with God around the throne of grace, he says, that's kind of why I've put you there.
That's why I've kind of put you there is, is that you're my messengers and witness to the power of God to change the brokenness and toxicity in your own life and you don't have to fix other people's lives. You have to share the gospel because Jesus is the one who fixes people's lives. And I know it's really difficult to hear, I, but I think the only basis where a statement that Jesus says is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you makes no sense outside of the forgiveness that God has given to us because of the sacrifice of his own son. Because a lot of our journey begins, first of all, on repentance for often our own ignorance and indifference. It's easy for us to be spectators in a world that's crumbling rather than messengers of the good news. And often we would have to repent of our own selfishness, of trying to insulate our lives from the reality of people's pain around us because we just don't want to be bothered sometimes. And we owe our friends at times a huge apology for being indifferent. That's different than being ignorant and not knowing how to help. And so the key here is not to say, all right, here we go as a church. We're going to go down and clean up downtown. I think the response that every one of us has to have starts with the gospel and what God has done for us. If the gospel isn't our motivation, our response will always fall short. And we have to remind ourselves that the, the centerpiece of the gospel is not this unconditional God that, or love that God loves and accepts everyone. God loves us despite who we are, not because of who we are. See, I, I think that sort of plays into the problem that there are certain groups of people that say, oh, well, the people that do bad stuff like this, well, there's, you know, they, they've got illnesses or they've got a, a sort of extraordinary issues in their life, so it's only those kinds of people that bring these kinds of problems. We need to realize that every one of us is in exactly the same boat as far as God is concerned. He does not love us because of who we are. He loves us despite who we are. And he doesn't accept any of us outside of faith in Jesus Christ where he then forgives our sins because Christ went through all these injustices and all these horrors and all this abuse and died for us because of the sin and the evil that's within us. And once we understand that one of the greatest things that we can do is begin to transform, allow God to transform us first, then we'll have both the motivation and the power of God in our presence so that we can offer encouragement to others. You know, I want to just finish with a reading. (laughs) I've just skipped to Romans 12, and I want to read this for you. Uh, Don't worry, we're going to come back to it, so... Don't consider us moving like light speed through here. But anyway, but I think, I hope you'll listen really carefully to these words because I think they really do capture the posture that we have to have, not just with one another, but in our community. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love, Give preference to one another in honor. Not because it's a duty, but to honor them. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, 
serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with those who are lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think that's our call as believers in Christ And I invite you to bow with me as we step before his throne of grace and allow him to speak into our lives. Father, thank you that before we do any kind of reacting, we need to be filled with the presence of Jesus. And it's very difficult because everybody has their own ideas and really what we need is the mind of Christ. But I pray that our motivation is the gospel of Jesus. It's the person of Christ. That the reason we do anything, whether it's sympathy or empathy or mercy or compassion, or that we identify so much in someone's journey that we become part of the journey with them, or we're able to do something that helps rescue people from certain situations, Father, we can't figure that out. We just our response needs to be grounded in the gospel of Jesus. What would Jesus compel us to do? What would the gospel have us do as our next step as individuals? Father, we ask that you would forgive us at times because the gospel hasn't been the motivation for our response lots of times in life. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who have gone through horrible injustices May they know and forgive us at times for our indifference. But Father, may they hear our heartbeat that we want to learn and that we want to move alongside and encourage and help. Teach us to live like Christ. Teach us to keep the gospel the centerpiece of all that we do. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.